Around the world, Muslims praise the Prophet Muhammad through the recitation of lyrical poetry. In West Africa, Arabic praise poetry has a rich history informed by local literary, spiritual, and ritual elements. Oludamani Ogunaike explores this abundant heritage in poetry and praise of prophetic perfections, a study of West African Arabic Mahdi poetry and its precedents, published with Islamic Text Society in 2020. In this social setting, praise poetry draws from traditional Islamic materials, but also employs patterns and concepts from West African sources and practices. Ogonaike translates numerous poems and contextualizes them within a deep intellectual well of Sufi thought. He also places these poems within the realm of live religious practice and presents them as part of everyday contemporary life in West Africa. In our conversation, we discuss the place of praise poetry as a genre, the broader literary tradition it relies on, Sufi theology, the wider intellectual heritage of West Africa, Ibrahim Nias and the Tijaniya order, audiences recitation and readings, the functions of these poems in practice, the process of translation, and how these sources might be used in classrooms. I'm one of your co-hosts, Christian Peterson, and thanks again for listening to New Books in Islamic Studies, a channel on the New Books Network. Now, without any further delay, here's my conversation with Oludamani Ogonaike about poetry and praise of prophetic perfection. Welcome to New Books and Islamic Studies. Thanks for joining me today, Dom. I'm excited to, to talk to you about your, your beautifully written and beautifully uh, looking book, Poetry and Praise of Prophetic Perfection. Um, how are you? I'm doing well, thanks. Thanks so much for having me on. Yeah, it's a it's a wonderful book. I'm I'm excited to get into it. Um, it's always good to have uh, new translations of materials, um, especially for teaching purposes. I think a lot of people would be able to use a lot of this material in their classes. Um, but even just uh, uh, to kind of get introduced to um, how this this uh, tradition, both literary and spoken, gets uh, played out in the West African uh, tradition, I'm excited to to hear more about it. Um, but we typically begin with a little bit about uh, what brought you to Islamic studies. So if there are particular uh, mentors or moments or, or things that drew you to uh, perhaps the, uh, the topics you're interested in, the approaches you take, uh, can you tell us a little bit about who, you know, how did you become the Islamic studies professor you are today? Uh, I mean, it's a it's kind of a long story. I initially started out in physics and then wound my way over to neuroscience and my first degree is actually in neuroscience and African studies. Um, and I came to Islamic studies through African studies. I was an undergrad at Harvard at the time, and I just started taking some African studies classes as electives and just totally fell in love uh, with African studies and the different perspectives it provided. And on the, the kind of questions I've been asking before or related questions in physics and neuroscience, but it provided a different kind of critical angle on these things. Um, and then uh, with, within um, African studies, I became particularly enamored of Yoruba uh, religious traditions, you know, being Yoruba myself, and then also Islamic traditions in Africa, particularly Sufism and the literature and the, the kind of philosophical and intellectual content there um, really just grabbed me. And then uh, it was difficult for my, for my family a little bit to think that, you know, <laughs> You know, we sent this kid to be a neuroscientist, and now he's going <laughs> to 
now he's going to study, you know, go back home. And, you know, we worked so hard to get here. But um, but they, they eventually came around when they saw that you, you could actually make a career out of this and support a family and and, and, and do do good work. So, uh, yeah, that's I, I came to Islamic studies through um, African studies. And in particular, I have to credit the African African-American Studies Department at Harvard, uh, where I did my undergrad and my Ph.D., a uh, bunch of professors there, Jacob Olupona, uh, the late uh, Francis uh, Abiola Irele, Biodun Jerifo, um, and Usman Khan, especially, uh, for for sparking my interest and helping me develop my love of uh, Islamic African uh, materials and, and, and thought. And Professor Khalid Rawahib over in the NELC at Harvard, I took an Arabic uh, seminar with him and absolutely fell head over heels in love with Ibn al-Farid's poetry. Um, so we, we studied one poem of his in the class and I kept asking for more poetry because it was just some of the most amazing uh, poetry I've ever read in my life. This is, uh, it's, it's great to always kind of get these background stories because uh, after reading the book, it really, this, this narrative kind of helps us see how all these threads come together, uh, especially in this project. And um, from what I know of your other work, it sounds like in that as well. So um, for, for this, uh, a, lot of the, a lot of the work you do in this book is translation itself and uh, making new, uh, you know, English renderings of, of Arabic texts that we uh, generally don't have access to. Um, so can you talk a little bit about, um, you know, how how did this project emerge for you? Uh, what motivated you to do it? You know, um, you, you're very lucky that you have a job, but translations uh, for, especially for emerging scholars is not often uh, valued in the same way as other type of work. So can, can you talk a little bit about like, how does this project fit into uh, your other kind of academic endeavors and what motivated you to, to want to do this? Yeah, that's a great question. This project is interesting. It's actually an accidental project. I was doing uh, research for um, what's going to be my, my other book, hopefully coming out this fall on epistemology in West African Sufism. And while I was doing research in Senegal and in Nigeria, um, I kept hearing these amazing uh, recordings, or not recording, performances of uh, people reciting poetry. Um, and these are things I heard as a kid in Nigeria, but it didn't really register to me what, what, what they were. Um, but, uh, and then when I would interview people about, let's say, how did you come to join a Sufi tariqa and things like that, about a dozen people told me, oh, I heard the sound of these uh, poems being recited and they attracted me. And I came, just kind of walked over to see what was going on. Like one guy told me, it's like I was coming out of a club in the morning and I heard these poems and I was like, wow, that's cool. So I just kind of wandered around the corner and there were these guys sitting in a circle reciting these poems in this incredible melody. And so I sat down and talked to them about what's going on next week. I took the tariqa and, you know, that was that. Um, so this, this, this poetry just kept popping up and it's um, it just the kind of aesthetic beauty and musical beauty of it grabbed me first. And so then I started talking to uh, some of the people who performed this poetry, uh, some composers of this poetry. Um, and then I noticed that these poems were being taught in these Sufi circles a lot. And that a lot of the kind of most interesting stuff, uh, from my perspective, the stuff that I was most interested in, in terms of Sufi cosmology and epistemology and things like that, uh, were 
in this, you could actually find them in the most clearest form in, in, in these poems. Um, and so I just started for, for myself, just because I thought it was interesting recording uh, some of these poems and started trying to translate um, some of them. And I, I wrote one paper, uh, Presence of Poetry, Poetry of Presence, about one poem in particular uh, that, that, I, that I really liked and that was very popular amongst the community in, in, in Senegal. Um, and I planned to make a kind of digital archive, um, West African Sufi Poetry Project. And this was, it was semi-academic, but it was mostly just recording, trying to get recordings and texts of very popular um, poems, just because I found them so aesthetically beautiful and I've always had an interest in poetry. Uh, but the, the actual book manuscript came as a, as a result of a paper I was writing for a conference at, at Harvard. Um, and the paper just grew and grew and grew and grew. And I sent it to the uh, conference organizer, uh, was happened to be Professor Khan, my old advisor. And he said, uh, this is great, but this is too long. He's like, this is a, this is a book length thing, you know, just uh, this, this is not a paper. So cut it in half for the conference. But, you know, you should consider publishing this as a book uh, later on. So it really kind of came about accidentally. I was just writing a paper um, about this and it just got bigger and bigger and bigger until it came to be uh, uh, about about book length. But the real origin of this is literally just the uh, the um, auditory, the aesthetic, the kind of musical experience of the poetry and being attracted to that and then hearing how other people were attracted to that. If, if I only had the same problem that I just keep writing, 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 and I just end up with a book, if we were all so lucky. Um, I was going to talk about this later on, but um, it seems related to kind of how you've been talking about this now. Um, but uh, many of the translations that you provide, um, you have a link to the, the a recorded audio version of it. Um, so maybe you could talk a little, just a little bit about how you imagine readers of the book uh, might use the book in relation to these recitations, um, maybe even in the classroom. Have you, have you thought about this? Or perhaps what do, you, what do you do in your own classrooms with these? Yeah, exactly. So this also kind of came out of my classroom teaching experience. I mean, a, a lot of our students, and even us now, are very you know, visually oriented, video oriented um, and especially when teaching Islam in Africa to, you know, a bunch of kids in Virginia, um, you know, it's uh, having the visuals there kind of the more immersive I can be, the better. I mean, sometimes I'll show people videos of Nigeria or something. And they're like, oh, people ride on motorcycles in Nigeria or there are skyscrapers. I mean, it's 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 wild. But, you know, this this is the kind of stereotypes we have to deal with. Um, so having these video things where they see like where they see people with their cell phones out, people dancing people just walking by in the marketplace, but giving that kind of immersive experience that you get from YouTube clips um, is really good. So I've used them in my teaching. I mean, as long as I've been teaching Islam in Africa, um, uh, the YouTube clips really help situate things um, in a way that would take, you know, pages and pages of, or, you know, hours of uh, verbal ex explanation. Um, but also the, the main thing for me is I hope readers and teachers who use this book will use the YouTube clips or other YouTube clips. I mean, there are a lot of great YouTube channels that uh, just kind of specialize in the performance of West African Medih poetry. Uh, they're great to teach with because there's, there's something about the sound and the performance of it that even if you can't understand the lyrics, um, 
which you know many people, um, even many people who enjoy these these poems in, in West Africa, don't fully aren't fluent in Arabic. There's just something about the performance uh, and the musicality of it that really brings it home in a way that uh, it's, it's tough to get on the page and is even tougher to get with a with a translation. So I'm hoping that if you if you teach it, if you read it, you'll listen to the poems. When I was writing the book um, and doing the translations, I would play these poems a lot, like in in the car when I was driving my son to daycare and stuff like that. And I found, as a result, accidentally, my son has uh, a good section of this one Mauritanian poem by Ali Adali memorized and this other other poem as well, too. And those were his two favorites. He just loved to listen to them. So if we're driving to daycare, he'd be like, Daddy, play Alfu Salati, or Daddy, play Salatu Rabbi. Um, there's, there's, there's something very special about the performance um, of these as well that, 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 that brings them to, to, to life. So I'm hoping that uh, readers uh, will become listeners and that teachers will, will play these YouTube links and other YouTube links as, as well. Because the, the poems, I guess kind of like the Quran, the Quran's uh, kind of on this oral literary continuum because it's it's a it's a recitation, so but it also has like letters in it, kaf, alif, lam, mim, kaf, ya, so it's also written, um, and these poems also kind of exist on that oral literary uh, uh, continuum, um, and so there's there's really something special that you get when you engage with both its written form and its performed form. Um, this might be a good place to ask you a little bit about craft as well in terms of uh, doing the translation work. Um, you know, many listeners are going to be working in translation as well. So um, can you talk a little bit about how you go about working on translating these texts? Uh, what strategies or process did you did you use? Um, are, there, are there different uh, things that happen when you're dealing with different types from the oral to the written? Or? Yeah, I mean, different poems kind of hit me differently. So there's one poem that's um, very, very uh, kind of a short lines, very musical. Um, and the rhythm of that was so strong. Actually, I tried to write the translation in the same rhythm um, of that, like in, in the same kind of meter in English, uh, because it, it's, it was just so strong and so catchy. It kind of imposed itself on the, on the translation. But generally what I tried to do when I would translate is I would try to parse um, each each bait, each verse as literally as possible and then look at the different possibilities of meaning because one of the things with poetry is that the poet's usually saying three or four things at the same time. You know? So there are different, several different ways you can parse uh, each verse and then you have to make a choice in translation or if you're really good, maybe you can capture two of the meanings um, by doing something like that. So I first just try to do as literal as possible of a translation, which was usually very clumsy, very awkward English. And then I try to go back um, and try to smooth it over and to make it a bit more readable English while still holding on to some of the um, literalness, especially with Arabic poetry. I think it, it, especially with Arabic Sufi poetry, maybe I should say, and and this kind of Arabic Sufi poetry, it does a lot playing with the the literal meaning of, of words. So it's like the famous joke about roots in Arabic is everything, every root in Arabic means something, it's opposite and something, having something to do with a camel. Um, and yeah. it's, it's really true. There, there are these kind of things that, uh, so like, uh, hawa, love or passion or something like that also can mean like the, the, uh, the dive of a falcon from on high 
or, or something like that. And the, these the the poets, uh, the really good poets, are kind of aware of these deep roots. So I go to like Lisan al Arab and Lane and try to look up the the kind of original, literal, you know, very kind of visceral uh, meanings of these things and try to kind of see the, the the visceral, literal picture that the poets were painting and what they were doing with that. And I would try where possible to uh, incorporate that into into the translations um, and still make them kind of readable. Uh, but it's it's that I'm 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 never I've never been fully happy with any of my translations. Um, I, I'll go back to them and go back to them and want to tweak it and do this and that. Um, and that's one of the reasons again why I wanted to include the links because um, you can read this translation in English and it it, it doesn't sound so nice. I mean it's it's, it's okay, but. Um, Hearing the the way the poems are sung in Arabic gives you a real sense of, of the beauty and why these things can be so enchanting. Um, so that that was kind of the the technique I used um, in translation. Um, and then there'd be a few times where I'd get stuck on something, and I'd call uh, usually WhatsApp one of my friends in Senegal and Nigeria uh, who are more immersed in this tradition. And I say, Hey, what's going on here? Is this read? You think this reading of mine is correct? This, this, and that. And sometimes they, you know, they make suggestions and I'd agree with them. Sometimes I wouldn't. Um, but having that kind of conversation with people who were even more more steeped in this poetry was was very helpful. Now, uh, the the kind of aesthetic draw of this poetry is is one kind of component of it. Um, but uh, I mean, this is a specific genre. So perhaps you could kind of help us think about what this kind of praise poetry is all about, what are some of the essential characteristics and, and uh, you know, if, if there's anything else uh, about poetry in general that you think makes it so resonant for, for many. Yeah. I mean, so this, the, the, the book is specifically about West African Arabic Sufi Madih poetry, Madih Nabawi poetry and praise of the prophet. So it's pretty specific, particular <laughs> region, particular language, and then a particular genre uh, with, within that um, language. So, uh, but it happens to be by far the most popular uh, form of Arabic poetry in West Africa, probably the most popular form of poetry in West Africa, even including the Europhone uh, traditions of, of poetry. Um, and so Madih poetry uh, is, is basically praise, praise poetry. Um, and it comes from a long tradition extending into the pre-Islamic period, Madih was originally part of uh, the kind of uh, long Qasida structure, which starts off with uh, the poet uh, in the um, uh, in the Nasib um, lamenting the absence of the beloved at the beloved's campsite, the ruins of the beloved's campsite, and the passage of time and uh, youth, the days gone by. And then the Qasida, the second part of the Qasida is called the Rahil, which is the poet journeying in, in search of the beloved and fighting off dangers and fighting battles and overcoming obstacles. And then the end, the, the third part, the last part of the Qasida traditionally is this Madih in which the poet praises a would-be patron or praises a uh, beloved or the beloved's tribe. Um, and it's usually kind of in, in expectation of a gift, sometimes explicitly. You know, so I praise you, so you give me money or give me this or horse or give me, you know, give me something, give me, give me status. Um, 
but very quickly in the Islamic period, you get these these uh, uh, poets who write poems in praise of the Prophet. So one of the most famous is the, the first Burda poem uh, by Ka'ab ibn Zuhair, uh, Banat Su'ad, uh, which is, he writes a poem along this traditional Qasida structure and ends with him uh, praising the Prophet and the Prophet's qualities in the co- community of Muslims around him. And he asks for the Prophet to forgive him because he had written some some poems lampooning the Prophet before him. So the Prophet forgives him in the, in the story and gives him his cloak, which is why it's known as the first poem, Burda poem, the poem of the, of the cloak. And you have Hassan uh, ibn Thabit and other poems praising praising the Prophet. So this Madih becomes its own genre uh, in, in the Islamic period with very famous poems by probably the most famous being Busiri's Burda, poem of the cloak. Um, and in West Africa, and it's particularly in Sufi West Africa, um, this genre is really, really important uh, because uh, West African Sufism, whether it's the Tijaniya or the Qadiriya, the two main orders in the region, is very, very focused, uh, is very profit-focused. I mean, all Sufism is, is very profit-focused, but um, the, the, the love of the Prophet, modeling the Prophet, and even a kind of mystical union with the Prophet called Fanafi Rasul, is uh, regarded in the region as the that's that's the kind of that's the goal of the Sufi practice of Muslim life is annihilation in the Prophet and cultivating love for the Prophet, and it's um, it's emphasized everywhere in the Muslim world, but it's particularly strong in in West Africa. And so, Madih poetry is a particularly, uh, I think, suitable vehicle for developing, expressing uh, that kind of relationship of closeness, intimacy, love. And even annihilation identity with the uh, with with the prophet, and that's how it's been used. Uh, in terms of poetry in general, um, I think poetry is it's interesting when you look at people who get classified as or writers who get classified as mystical, uh, quote unquote, in you know various traditions and literatures of of the world. They tend to write in poetry or be very poetic. Um, and I think it has something to do, at least in the Sufi tradition, they say the, the spiritual experiences and knowledge that they have uh, resist description in ordinary language. And so you have to use poetic language. So it's like um, in earlier, the paper that kind of preceded this, um, I argue that, you know, if, if there's, if you have some experience that we don't share in common, like, you know, if, you know, you're trying to explain to me what durian tastes like, and I've never had durian, the, the fruit. You know, you'd have to use poetic language. If it's like this, it's kind of like that. You'd have to use similes and metaphors and, and, and so on and so forth. Um, so poetic language seems particularly apt uh, for Sufi expressions. Um, for that reason, also the kind of Sufi cosmology in which, in a certain sense, everything is everything. Uh, everything is contained in everything else. So you kind of have levels of reality in which everything is connected. Uh, everything in the cosmos is connected uh, to everything else is also a very kind of poetic vision of of the cosmos um, of and of language and the relationship between language and, and the cosmos and I think that also lends itself to poetry and then uh, something uh, that Dennis McCauley has a good book on Ibn Arabi's poetics um, and Ibn Arabi actually describes the whole universe as a poem because it's all God's speech all of the created world is is God's speech but it's ordered. Um, and it has certain order and repetition to it. So it's like meter and rhyme. And so the whole universe is a poem. Um, and Ibn Arabi also explains that kind of poetry is a, is a barzakh, a liminal reality that both unites and separates um, 
kind of silence and speech. So it's it's kind of halfway between music, just pure wordless music and prose. Um, and then so I took that and kind of dived into it a little bit. You even see it in the formal features of poetry, like the meter, the rhythm is kind of a barzakh between stillness and motion. Uh, the rhyme is a barzakh between one sound and many sounds. And so poetry has this kind of barzakhi liminal quality that... Um, in Sufi cosmology, uh, that's that's kind of what that's what human beings are. Human beings are barzakh between uh, being and nothingness, especially the prophet. Um, and so, this kind of poetic speech uh, seems particularly favored by Sufis for a number of reasons. I mean, some of them just historical, some of them having to do with their cosmology, with theories of language, um, and things like that. But it seems to be uh, a particularly chosen vehicle for the expression and the encapsulation of spiritual states, ideas, knowledge, and things like that that otherwise resist ordinary discursive description. I think Ibn Arabi, there's another good article by Claude Adas uh, called The Ship of Stone. Ibn Arabi called poetry the uh, the language of the saints, uh, something like that. Um, and for the West African Sufis, that's certainly, certainly the case, um, at least the, the ones with, with which I'm familiar yeah and that that of course is the other big kind of component um that you draw this this uh material from um so perhaps you could uh, kind of help us understand a little bit about sufism in west africa um if i remember correctly uh, much of the poetry that you're translating uh is from uh ibrahim nias exactly yeah um so uh what do we need to know about uh you know, Sufism in West Africa, the Tijaniya in particular, Ibrahim Nias in particular, um, to really kind of understand what you're what you're doing in the in the book. Yeah. So I mean, the, yeah. One of the the main things I'm trying to do is I was trying to I was reading a lot of a lot of this poetry, but then also uh, the author's own commentaries on their own poems and commentaries by their students on these poems to try to bring out. Uh, not just do a kind of literary analysis of, of, of the poetry from the outside, but try to understand how uh, the authors, the poets, and the communities that, that recite and engage with this poetry, how they understand it. Um, so Sufism in West Africa is interesting. There's a Pew Charitable, stu- tr- Pew Charitable Trust study done in, I think, 2014 and 2015 that found that Sufism is more popular in West Africa than any other region of the Muslim world. And there's some methodological problems with their study, but according to them, 92% of Senegalese Muslims identify as Sufi, identify as belonging to a tariqa. It's something like 37% in Ghana and Nigeria, 55% in, in, in Chad. Um, so this, this, this is a, a region in, you know, in the 21st century that's uh, heavily Sufi influenced, if not Sufi dominated. And if you go a century or two back, it's even more so. Most of the founders of these um, major polities, pre-colonial polities, were Sufi scholars. So the founder of the Sokoto Caliphate, Othman Danfodio, who uh, have some, uh, I think, two of his poems here in in, in the book, was a Qadiri Sheikh, uh, and Al-Hajj Umar Tal, uh, who founded the Tukular Empire, was one of, um, and stretched from Senegal to Mali and Guinea, um, in the mid 19th century, was a Tijani Sheikh. Uh, Amadou Bamba was, uh, was uh, he had several initiations and then became the head of the what's now the Muridiya order. 
in Senegal. Um, and then going back even further than that, uh, scholars like Ahmed Baba and Timbuktu and Mohammed Kashnawi uh, called uh, Dan Masane and these other scholars had Sufi uh, affiliations and initiations and wrote works of, 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 of Sufism. So there's, there's always, in West Africa's um, history is interesting um, because like a lot of places, pre-colonial Sufi orders were very active. What's kind of distinct about West Africa, it's not unique, but the, distinct is the, the way in which these uh, Sufi orders and Sufi leaders in the um, 18th and 19th century uh, gained a lot of political power and uh, kind of set the tone of uh, not only Islamic scholarship, but also political organization um, and, and the, the period right before uh, colonization. And then there were all kinds of interesting interactions in the colonial period as well, too, which in some cases actually strengthened some Sufi orders. You had people converting en masse to Islam and joining these uh, Sufi orders as a kind of alternative social structure and hierarchy to the collapsing old order and as an alternative to the, the kind of new Europhone uh, colonial uh, order. So Sufism, for a number of interesting different re- reasons, um, uh, was and continues to be very prominent in uh, in West Africa. Now, the particular form of Sufism, most popular order in West Africa is the Tijaniya. It was founded by Sheikh Ahmed Tijani. Uh, it was an 18th century uh, scholar, Saharan scholar, um, born in the middle of the Algerian desert, studied in Fez, made Hajj, had all these interesting connections with Shiuch and Sufis and scholars from around the world in Medina, and came back to North Africa, and uh, the legend is had a waking vision of the prophet who instructed him to found this new order, the Tijaniya, which spread like wildfire uh, across the Sahara Desert, especially in sub-Saharan Africa and in the Sahel across the Sudan. And the Tijaniya places a particular emphasis on uh, prayers on the prophets, on connection with the prophets, um, and a lot of Tijani sheikhs uh, claim to have waking visions of the prophet, sometimes perpetually waking uh, visions of the prophet and have discourse with the prophet. And it's a very prophet-centric uh, form of Sufism. And the, the Tariqa, like a bunch of other movements at the time, took the name Tariqa Muhammadiyah. And I've emphasized this, this focus on Prophet Muhammad. The other main uh, Sufi order in um, West Africa is the Qadiriya, you know, which is widespread everywhere. Uh, West African Qadiris, though, like the Tijanis, also have a very kind of prophet-centric uh, Sufism. So not only focus on the sunnah of, of, of the prophet following that in minute detail, but they also strongly emphasize the, the hakikutul muhammadiyah, the spiritual reality, logos-like spiritual reality of the prophet and having a connection with that and um, uh, dreams and waking visions of the prophet play a really important role. In, uh, in in this in this form of Sufism, as do prayers on the prophets and uh, poetry in praise of him. And then, um, so Ibrahim Nias plays this kind of uh, essential role, at least in the in the uh, translations that you make. Um, and I, I can't remember particularly if it was him or, or someone else, but I remember somebody that like the last twenty years of their writing oh, yeah. career, they they only wrote this type of yeah, poetry. Yeah. Was that him? No, that's that's Sheikh Ahmed oh. Bamba. Um, oh, okay. But I, so, I, yeah, Ibrahim, yes, most of, I mean, he wrote, I think, 12 collections of poetry, uh, which are almost entirely just Medea. 
poetry and praise the prophet. Yeah. So can, can you tell us a little bit more about kind of um, in these specific Sufi orders in the kind of everyday live practice, how, how might uh, the, the, this poetry kind of play a part um, within these orders and within daily lived, lived reality? lived realities? So, I mean, what, they, they play all kinds of in daily lived practice. <laughs> you see it, people at, at naming ceremonies uh, for children, people who recite these poems, uh, people recite these poems generally. Uh, so, I mean, if you go in the houses of some shuyuk, they'll have someone, they'll have like a Puran reciter and they'll have someone re- who recites the poetry of Sheikh Ibrahim if they're in his branch. Or if, you, um, if you're in a, na- a Murid neighborhood, let's say in Dakar or Tuba, you hear Sheikh Amadou Bamba's poems and praise of the Prophet blasting from speakers, either people are playing recordings or they're coming out of taxis or um, people are sitting around in a circle uh, reciting them, particularly on Friday, Thursday night, Friday night. Um, so generally, people will get together in circles to recite their litanies, uh, sometimes in the morning and, and especially in the evenings after work. And usually, sometimes before, but often typically after these litanies, people will recite this poetry. Then I found out um, in, in Senegal and Nigeria, um, and other places in West Africa as, as, as well too, especially in Sheikh Bernias's branch of the Tijaniya, which sorry I forgot to talk about. It's the, called the Faida, and it's a or the Flood, um, and it's a particularly popular branch of the Tijaniya. Um, it started in Senegal with Sheikh Bernias's Senegalese, but it's very very popular in Nigeria, uh, throughout the Sahel, over to Sudan and ethiopia and it's now traveled in the diaspora it's popular in europe and in the, in the states they've got big zawiyas in atlanta and detroit and in south africa and other places too but in this um the sheikhs will use sheikh Remyas's poetry as a part of the program of tarbiyah or spiritual training so they're actually assigned disciples to recite poems for certain spiritual purposes so certain poems will be recited in order to have a dream of the prophet other poems will be recited and kind of explained to help uh, explain different aspects of Sufi cosmology and different Sufi experiences to the prophets, not only to explain them, but to kind of provoke the realization or the, uh, the experience of these realities um, in, uh, in, in disciples. Um, and then you have people who, you know, just have these poems on their cell phones and listen to them when they're working or driving or with their friends and hang out and talk about it. Um, so it's, the poems are used in a wide variety of ways from this kind of methodical, you know, formal spiritual practice to kind of more informal enjoyments. Um, yeah, so they're, they're used in a wide variety of ways. Hmm. Um, one of the other things you do in the book, um, and you, you kind of talked a little bit about some of this are the, the sources and the influences on this, this type of poetry, um, and of course, there's there's Islamic, uh, you know, predecessors. Uh, but you also talk about kind of West African influences. So can, can you talk about uh, the the type of praise poetry that happens in West Africa? What are these kind of multiple uh, strains that influence them? Yeah, this was a particularly fun section for me to um, research and write because uh, this this uh, there was this kind of colonial myth of Islam noir that uh, African Islam is or black Islam is radically different from white Islam. It's kind of this racial thing. And so there's been a big reaction against that in the scholarship to show that no African Islam isn't 
so, somehow racially just uh, like emotional and spiritual rather than intellectual and all these other silly racial things. But part of the thing that I think that's been uh, sometimes missed in the pushback against the, the kind of racist colonial stereotypes is the actual important influence of uh, pre-Islamic or non-Islamic African cultures and literary traditions, uh, for example. So one of these is uh, many, many traditions amongst a lot of the different ethno-linguistic groups of West Africa praise poetry. So for myself, I remember like in Nigeria, when we would go to weddings and functions, you would have praise singers that would go around and sometimes they would improvise um, praise songs in Yoruba for uh, patrons and then people give them money. And there are particular, there's a particular kind of, uh, I describe in English, oriki. It's, it's kind of like a praise epithet. Uh, it's a very poetic speech uh, that every family has its own oriki. It kind of names your ancestors through these very poetic epithets. So it's like the, the, the elephants that trampled the, the palm tree and never gets burned by fire or something. And then those have this, this string of uh, very poetic epithets that kind of tell you who you are and where you're from. And these praise poets uh, will come up, and if they know your family and know who you are, they sing your ariki, and it makes you feel really good, and you give them some give them some money. So, I, you know, going to weddings and funerals and things like that, I grew up around um, these kind of things. And then in the, um, in, uh, in the Mande region, and even broader, so kind of Senegal, Mauritania, Mali, Guinea, Cote d'Ivoire, Burkina Faso, Niger, uh, they have this incredible jelly or griots, the French translation of tr- tradition of praise singing, um, in which they'll sing praises of ancestors, the ancestors of people. Um, so if you meet anyone who or see a soccer player whose last name is Keita, that means they're a descendant of Sundiata, the mythical king uh, of whose story was the inspiration for the Lion King. And so if you meet a Keita, the jelly will burst into the Sundiata song, um, and then the Keita will be obliged to give the jelly, the griot, uh, some money uh, for that as a kind of recompense for that. And in all of these different uh, traditions, it's kind of understood you're not just flattering the person, but in, in a certain sense, you're evoking, you're calling forth their ancestors who are still within them. Um, and I, I, th- I think there's a very similar thing going on in uh, the Madih poetry. Uh, as as well too, because in this uh, Sufi, the West African Sufi cosmology, they they take the, you know, the verses of Quran that prophet is closer to the believers than themselves, very literally. So that the prophet is really the the heart of uh, or the core or the essence of each and every person, really each and everything, but particularly people. Um, and so they're, they're trying to evoke that. And then this, but this influence, aside from this kind of like bigger cosmological things, you can even see the influence in the technical formal features of, of the, of the tradition. So one thing is, I think that's the, 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 the common genre of, or different genres of praise poetry that existed, let's say pre-Islamically or that, um, were in non-Muslim or less Muslim, uh, non-scholarly circles that were popular there. I think they also influenced and supported the popularity of Medea poetry. Um, but as I said, they even influenced the, the form of it. So one of the most famous uh, Medih poems and influential in the region was this poem by this Mauritanian uh, scholar, Ali Adali, 18th century Shadali Sufi. And he says he was traveling in his commentary on his poem, Salatul Rabi, he was traveling and he heard um, a group of Igawin, griots, singing this beautiful song. And he liked the melody so much 
that he said, I've got to write a poem praising the prophet with this melody. And so it's not in one of the standard meters of uh, classical Arabic poetry, even though he wrote the poem in classical Arabic instead of Hassaniya Arabic, the kind of Arabic dialect of, of the region, it uses uh, a, a meter and a melody from griot melodies and songs. And the same thing happens in the present day, um, 20th century, early 21st century, with this uh, poet from Jenne in Mali, Koyaro, who would take, he would listen to popular recordings on the radio of uh, jelly music, of griot music uh, from Mali's, Mali's done a pretty good job supporting this music. So they have lots of national orchestras and bands and things like that. Um, so he'd listen to songs that he really liked there. And then he would write out uh, metrical structures based on the songs. And then he would compose his own maduhu, is what they call it in Jenne, his own uh, madih poems in classical Arabic, but to the meters of these jelly songs. Um, and then another thing that you see happen in, in, in West Africa is that people who are from these uh, praise poet families um, often uh, become the performers of Medih poetry. Uh, so Uthman Danfodio, when he took over the Sokoto Caliphate, encouraged the Hausa and Fulani praise singers. He said, stop singing praises of men and sing the praises of God's beloved, the, the best of men. I mean, the, the kind of quote-unquote secular political praise, more political, more ancestral praise poetry tradition still continues. It's still very, very vibrant. But a lot of these... Um, singers added Medih poetry to their repertoires um, and added poems in praise of great Sufi saints uh, along to the repertoire of praise of great mythical cultural heroes and ancestral figures and, and so on. So it's a really interesting influence, um, not only of the Arabic tradition on non-Arabic traditions, but also on the non-Arabic and non-Islamic traditions on the Arabic tradition as well. Um, another uh, section of the book, you talk about the various kind of functions or, 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 or uses uh, uh, of these poems um, and how they can uh, serve as duas or dhikr um, or um, be part of this kind of hilya uh, tradition. Um, so uh, what, what are, how do these poems kind of, uh, how are they used as that? Do they, um, are their structures then different or uh yeah, how does this all fit in? Yeah, so uh, this was yeah this was actually interestingly inspired partly by looking at the commentaries on the poems, partly by just hanging out and seeing how these poems were performed by people, but then also by um, conversation I had with Hamza Stainton, who's teaches up at McGill. He works on like Kashmiri uh, Hindu poetry, like Sanskrit poetry, and we noticed some interesting similarities. And he has a good book, Poetry as Prayer. Um, and the different kind of uh, ritual functions that that poetry has. Um, so that kind of inspired this organization of it. But yeah, so there, there are different um, structures and functions that you'll notice. And one poem can serve as many of these different functions. Um, so this it's kind of a heuristic division. But a lot of these Medih poems will function as du'a. So sometimes they're just explicitly just a versified du'a uh, for intercession uh, you know, God, I love you, the prophet, so much. Um, please intercede for me. Or other times, they'll even say the act, the very act of composing a poem in praise of the prophet, is a request for intercession. So Yadali quotes this hadith that I haven't found 
elsewhere, but he says that the prophet says, anyone who praises me in poetry, even with one verse, I will intercede for him on the day of judgment. Um, and the Sheikh Amadou Bamba's poetry and Sheikh Bramyas's poetry are littered with references, um, as well as other uh, poets and poems too, that my praise of the prophet is my intercession. It's my happiness in the two worlds. It's the thing that uh, is, is my request for spiritual elevation. It's, it's this and that. So you have these all of these explicit requests for spiritual success, for health, for protection from enemies, for, for happiness in this world and the next, and all these kinds of things. Um, even some poems, uh, not necessarily strictly Madih poems, but there, there are a lot of poems and poetic prayers that were used, let's say, in uh, French colonial occupation to pray for God to relieve the, the Muslims of the French colonial occupation. Um, and poems were recited as du'as to, let's say, relieve illness as well, too. So the famous story about Busiris, you know, the 13th century or uh, 14th century um, Egyptian poet or North African Egyptian poet uh, who wrote the Borda was that this, the story goes that he was sick and he composed the poem while he was sick. And when he finished, he had a dream and the prophet put his cloak around him. He woke up with the cloak on him and he was cured of his paralysis or his, his disease. Um, and then this, this kind of... Um, trope gets repeated numerous times throughout uh, West African Sufi literature. So Hajjou Martal wrote this uh, this incredible poetic feat in which he took a previously existing collection of uh, 29, 20-verse 20 poems and did a deca-stitch attached here of them. So he added eight hemi-stitches of his own uh, to the two, two, two hemi-stitches of each verse of this massive collection of, of poetry. Um, and his, this, when he fell really ill, his disciples recited that over him to cure him. And they said it cured him. Um, so the poetry often functions as a dua for, you know, lifting illness, happiness, or all these other kinds of things. And sometimes it's explicit. Sometimes it's, it's more implicit. Um, the poetry also functions as a kind of this Helia tradition in which it describes the, the appearance and the character of the prophet. And the purpose of that is to kind of provoke and evoke love and longing for the prophet. And usually those are kind of almost a distinct subgenre on their own where they really get into the, uh, the descriptions of the physical attributes, the character of the prophet. Usually Medih poetry bounces back and forth between the, um, the kind of historical prophet and the uh, prophetic reality, the Hakikatul Muhammadiyah. So you have this bouncing back and forth between like, you know, your light was the first light to emerge from God's light. And then down to, and you took care of orphans and patched your own sandals and did this and that. Um, and the ones that are kind of on the more Hilia side of things uh, tend to focus more on the, the historical prophet, although still connecting it to this kind of primordial prophetic light. Um, and then often poet, a lot of this poetry is performed and functions as a dhikr. So people will recite a verse or half a verse, and then it will be interspersed with recitations of the shahada, of Allah, 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 of other divine names, of other things. And it's repeated sometimes for hours and, and as, a, as a form of dhikr. Um, and a lot of the poetry, particularly at its end, ends with uh, salawat on the prophet. And in fact, a lot of the poems really can just kind of be seen as poetic extensions of the salawat genre, the genre of uh, invoking prayers on, 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 on the prophet. 
Um, so there's there's a lot to this book, and we've been jumping around. So um, I'm not sure if there's anything else you want to let a, let listeners know uh, before they they go out and pick the book up. Um, um I guess uh, I think for me one of the the most important things I was trying to do in in, in the book was to uh, draw people's attention to and give people examples of that they could work with of uh, African Arabic literature. Um, because a lot of scholars of Arabic literature tend to focus on the quote unquote Arab world. Um, and there's a lot of great Arabic literature that's being produced outside of these confines. So in Southeast Asia and South Asia and Central Asia and West Africa in East Africa. Um, and also for Africanists, I wanted to kind of make more known, um, and give like actual concrete examples that people could use and work with. Uh, examples of uh, African literature isn't just in uh, European languages. It's also not just in, um, you know, African language novels or things like that. There are, there are traditions of African literature that go back very, very far um, in Arabic and in uh, African languages. Um, and so what else? Yeah, the um, the... Yeah, so I I just wanted to give to to kind of make that intervention in, in the kind of fields of African literature and Islamic studies and Arabic studies um, as 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 well, and to also try to uh, try to understand the poetry as best I could, the way the poets and the reciters uh, did to kind of use the terminology and the categories and the the theories of language and poetics that um, that I saw operating in in the tradition. Because um, it's one thing to kind of come at it from the outside with whatever theories of poetics you may have, um, but it's it's another thing to uh, to try to un- get at it from the inside, and uh, that's that's what I was really trying to do. I, I hope I hope it was an enriching exercise. It was for me. I hope it I hope it will be for readers. Yeah, yeah, it's a it's a great book, and I, I'm glad it's uh, at a at a price that's uh, accessible as well. Um, before before I let you go, um, I, I know you have another new book uh, coming out shortly, and uh, I'm sure you have things um, lined up after that. So, can you tell us a little bit about some of the other things you have uh, coming coming out or uh, yeah, planned out yeah. ahead? Oh, I also remembered one other thing I wanted to say to your previous question yeah, that, yeah, that, that I blanked on was um, another thing I wanted to do because this was something I suffered from at first was that the there's a kind of prejudice that says the devotional is separate from the literary and the intellectual. So when I first started working with like West African manuscripts and I would see all this medieval poetry, I would kind of just skip over it because I'd be like, okay, it's devotional stuff. It's like, I get it. The prophet's wonderful and you love him so much. And okay. And uh, I feel really embarrassed that that I did that now. Um, But uh, I kind of had this prejudice and I've seen it in a lot of the the other work, um, uh, you know, from previous decades on West African Arabic and West African Islamic uh, literature that, um, the devotional, something being devotional literature doesn't mean that it's not literary. It doesn't mean that it's not creative. doesn't mean that it's not intellectual. Far from it. So a lot of these categories that we have um, and that we use, that we've inherited from our own academic uh, traditions and the boundaries that they draw don't, don't necessarily apply um, when we look at other literatures and other literary cultures. Um, as for the other stuff I'm working on now, um, so right now I'm trying to finish the copy edits on uh, my, my next book, which was supposed to be my first book, but this one kind of lapped it. 
Uh, so it's <laughs> called uh, Deep Knowledge, Ways of Knowing in uh, um, Ifa and Tijani Sufism, Two West African Intellectual Traditions. So what took me to Senegal and Nigeria to do this was the research for this book, which is a much bigger book, and it's a study of epistemology in uh, Ifa, which is a, an indigenous Yoruba tradition and Tijani Sufism. Um, and that should be out, God willing, in October, if I can uh, finish all the copy edits. Um, and then I've started work on, uh, this may end up being another book, but I have a series of articles on uh, Uthman Danfodil's uh, son, uh, grandson, uh, Sheikh Dan Tafa, who's really interesting because he wrote works of falsifa in 19th century uh, northern Nigeria. Um, and that's very unique. We don't usually see anyone calling anything what they're doing, uh, any scholars calling what they're doing falsifa in the Maghreb, you know, in the Islamic West, really after Ibn Khaldun or maybe even earlier um, after the fall of Andalusia. Uh, so he's a really interesting Sufi and philosophical thinker um, that I've I've been uh, been working on. Um, and the, the last thing that I've just started working on now is trying to put into conversation um, some Caribbean theorists and thinkers like Franz Fanon and Sylvia Winter with uh, and their kind of decolonial projects and ideas with uh, West African uh, Sufi decolonial thinkers. Um, and revolutionaries like Emir Abdul Qadir, Amadou Bamba, Amadou Hampateba, and Ibrahim Yass. There's a kind of interesting complementarity uh, with, with these different figures that I'm trying to work out. So I, I have my plate full. I've got my hands full for a while. Yeah, good luck. It all uh, is very, very exciting stuff, though. So uh, I look forward to uh, reading all about it in the, in the future. Thank you so much. Thanks so much for having me on. I really appreciate it. Yeah, and thank you for for making the time to talk about the book. Thanks again for listening to New Books in Islamic Studies. That was my conversation with Oludamani Ogonaike about poetry in praise of prophetic perfection, a study of West African Arabic Mahdi poetry and its precedents, published with Islamic Tech Society in 2020. We hope you'll listen again to New Books in Islamic Studies.